And I think a lot of doctors kind of know this, but it's never really been at the forefront of, of their minds until now, is we know, for example, that you know, people who have high blood glucose or type 2 diabetics get more, you know, have worse outcomes from any infection, specifically respiratory infections. So when I started looking at the literature and also looking at how immune health links to excess body fat, obesity, and type 2 diabetes, pre-COVID, the data was very clear that this is a big risk factor for, um, you know, a dysregulated immune system, an immune system that isn't going to function properly. So it wasn't just about the associations that we were drawing from COVID-19 and worse outcomes. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Asim Malhotra, who is a cardiologist with the UK's National Health Service and also a world-renowned expert in the prevention, diagnosis, and management of heart disease. He's a longtime health activist and a founding member and lead campaigner of Action on Sugar, which is an initiative which highlights the harm caused by excess sugar consumption. Dr. Malhotra has been published in numerous research journals, including the BMJ, British Journal of Sports Medicine, BMJ Open Heart, and JAMA Internal Medicine, as well as print and broadcast media in outlets like The Guardian and Observer, BBC, Huffington Post, and The Washington Post. His first book, The Piapi Diet, has become an international bestseller, and most recently, he's become a very vocal advocate for the importance of improving metabolic health in order to reduce our vulnerability to infection, including COVID-19. And he's authored the book, The 21-Day Immunity Plan, How to Rapidly Improve Your Metabolic Health and Resilience to Fight Infection. So Dr. Malhotra and I talked about the link between metabolic health and immune function. We also dug into ways we can improve our own immunity and why turning the tide in the fight against poor metabolic health is going to take a lot more than just personal responsibility. This was a great and well-rounded conversation. I really enjoyed it. I had been looking forward to speaking with him for quite some time, so I hope you enjoy listening as well. Before we dive into the episode, we do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. Now, let's get started with the episode. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I am very excited to be here with Dr. Asim Malhotra. Um, I have been looking forward to speaking with you on the podcast for a long time, but I'm excited that today we get to talk about a topic that is, I think, at the top of a lot of people's minds. So welcome. Delighted to be here to speak to you today, Julie. Awesome. Well, I thought before we dive in to the topic of metabolic health and immunity and what this means um, in the time of COVID-19, first, it would be great to hear a little bit about your background because, you know, I know you are a cardiologist and early in your career, you're trained as a, in a traditional sense, looking at procedures and stenting and things like that. But at some point, you became interested in looking at the bigger picture of nutrition and lifestyle and the impact that that was having on not only our cardiac health, but our health in general. So can you talk about how that became a big interest for you? Sure. So Julie, I qualified for medical school in Edinburgh uh, 2001. So I've been a practicing doctor now for almost two decades. And uh, almost all of that has been exclusively in the National Health Service. 
Um, and what I noticed myself, and you know, I, I you know, subspecialize in cardiology, and then within cardiology, I, I went into interventional cardiology. So what I was really trained in, uh, what I qualified in as a um, as a consultant, which is I think the equivalent you call it there is, um, I think when you are the you, you're the top of your field specialty is attending or yeah, I think yeah, what, yeah what, what's the or or a subspecialist or something if you're in a yeah so so, so something you know so I, I originally you know most of what I did was was coronary angiograms visualizing heart arteries and and deciding on you know whether people need stents or bypass operations for example and also treating acute heart attacks um, but you know as you as you well know Julie cardiology is a huge you know um, it's a very broad uh, speciality there's there's so much going on in cardiology beyond just procedures there's you know we treat heart failure. We, we're having to, you know, um, deal with uh, diagnosis, um, reassurance a lot of the time. You know, rhythm disturbance, all that kind of stuff. So there's a huge area to cover in cardiology, which is, you know, part of what I was doing. But of course, you know, part of the um, the extra part of cardiology that I was most interested in was was coronary artery disease. And then, as a as a clinic as a physician as a clinical doctor working in the NHS for many years, I noticed um, since I qualified, Julie, that there was more and more stress on the system. In particular, seeing more and more patients come in with lots of you know multi uh, you know morbidities, comorbidities, um, essentially you know more conditions, more chronic disease, and and with that, as you know, Julie, you get more misery. And I'm someone that uh, is, is was very sensitive to that, but also somebody that could see how that was affecting my colleagues in the system as well. So I initially, um, you know, was looking into that myself, trying to understand what was happening. And of course, 2004, the World Health Organization announced that obesity was a, a global, a major global issue. And, and, and the stats in the UK, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure in the US as well, and many other parts of the world is that, you know, we kept hearing these headlines every few months, at least once a year, Obesity is increasing, type 2 diabetes is increasing, and uh, I, I originally wanted to play my part to try and figure out what was driving it and then what could be done about it. And around sort of 2010, I was working at that stage in Harefield Hospital, which is a big cardiac center in London, um, and I was still what we call training at that point. I was what we call a specialist registrar. And, um, you know, I think one epiphany moment for me, and I had probably many over time, these things, you know, build up was the fact that we treated a heart attack patient with emergency coronary stenting in the middle of the night. And then the next morning when I was speaking to him on the ward round about, you know, religiously taking his meds and, and, and changing his lifestyle, he had a bit of a pot belly, a bit of a gut. Um, and he was a smoker as well. So I told him about, you know, he must stop smoking. Um, he was actually served a burger and fries by the hospital. And he looked at me and said, Doc, how do you expect me to change my lifestyle if you're serving me the same, pardon my language, crap? that brought me here in the first place. And, you know, it made me really just think that, you know, there's something seriously wrong with the hospital food environment and our approach to treating patients beyond just giving them pills, that in itself was part of the uh, problem, part of the issue. You know, the messaging was wrong. Um, we weren't setting the right example. And ultimately, you know, we've, I've come full circle and I realized, you know, all, a lot of it was just due, due to lack of knowledge. So I started researching, you know, data and, uh, and looking at actually how impactful was diet and specifically in relation to heart disease. We knew it was an issue for obesity and found that actually, you know, pretty good data showing that changes in diet can have quite a rapid impact on reducing cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. In other words, reduction in death rates and improving risk factors quite quickly. So that's really where things started um, for me 
But I think then linked to that, um, Julie, was the fact that I was also more and more aware of the fact that many people were taking, you know, lots of various medications that were coming with side effects, and it wasn't improving their quality of life. And through the BMJ initially, the British Medical Journal at the time, they had, um, 2012, they launched a campaign called Too Much Medicine. And I was, you know, paying attention to the medical literature and realizing that there was a huge issue of over-medication, which was, com you know, combine that with the issue about us not really dealing with lifestyle. And those two issues on their own, pretty much, Julie, would explain the whole healthcare crisis. So, you know, I then started writing and publishing initially in The Observer and The Guardian newspaper, and then it became, you know, in, in medical journals, and, uh, and then decided that I was, you know, going to go down the path of being really, a, as well as a, a practicing clinician, um, as an activist, really, as a campaigner, someone that is a change activist. Um, and, and this is where we are now, really. This is where we've come to. So, you know, this is a, I've had this sort of experiences. I've had a very interesting journey. Um, you know, largely positive with its challenges over, you know, pretty much a decade now and, um, and, and you know, has been someone that has played a role and been instrumental, certainly in, in policy changes, um, uh, you know, within the UK, more specifically, you know, was probably the lead campaigner in bringing about a, a soda tax or we call sugary drinks uh, levy over in the, in the UK as well. So, yeah, quite a lot of things that I've been doing. But ultimately, you know, Julie, it just comes down to the patient. You know, what motivates me is the patient in the consultation room. You know, are we, uh, I look at myself, think about, am I doing the best I can for my patient? And that doesn't just mean um, giving them the best treatment and having the right kind of, you know, honest and open, transparent conversations with them in the consultation room. But it also is about what is my role in terms of influencing the wider determinants of health. As you know, what determines peace people's health is mostly it starts way beyond um, you know the, the walls of the hospital it happens before then most of what determines our health is actually nothing to do with modern medicine so it's also realizing that I have a duty and responsibility to uh, be you know an outspoken advocate for those changes in the wider environment that make people sick so that they don't need to necessarily come into hospital in the first place or at the very least we curb that that stress on the system that is making everybody miserable. It's making patients miserable. It's really making doctors miserable as well. Um, you know, so this is, uh, you know, these are all the sort of areas that I, um, you know, that I, um, I fight for, if you like. Yeah, and uh, you've been doing amazing work. And I think, I think that's important what you just said, at the last part being that it's so many of these other factors. It's not, it's not even just in you know a personal responsibility decision of the the individual patient making you know there is some you know making the the decision about what to eat but also it's how do we change our food environment how do we change what's served in the hospitals and the cafeterias and the school systems there's so many other factors and contributing to also why we see such you know disparities among social economic status too it's very complicated and and you have to advocate outside of the healthcare system because that is where health is created really yeah absolutely julian i think you're, you're you're spot on there you know we we hear this mantra about personal responsibility a lot and it was fascinating because um i know that has been the sort of if you like um something that's been used as a form of propaganda by the very industries that themselves are in my view to blame for this whole problem of chronic ill health and the two industries in particular are the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry 
by their excesses and manipulations. Not that they don't produce some benefit and do some good, but a lot of what they do is actually very harmful and they mislead people. And the personal responsibility script, interestingly, it was uh, my colleague and friend, Robert Lustig, who's a pediatrician in, in UCSF, um, you know, probably the, the, the main guy globally that really started the, um, the huge awareness around the harms of sh excess sugar consumption. And he informed me actually through a, a discussion we had uh, on, on CrossFit's, um, uh, you know, uh, through CrossFit on, a, on, a, uh, on an interview, uh, a discussion we had. And he said that personal responsibility was something that really came from big tobacco. It was never really, you know, pre-big tobacco era, it was never really discussed. It wasn't ever a, something that people would talk about, personal responsibility. And I think on that, just very briefly for people to try and understand that, because some people say, hold on a minute. Some people actually, I see on Twitter, it's all about personal responsibility. And I think these people genuinely think that. I don't think this is, uh, there are some people that aren't, you know, they're not necessarily front men of the, of the food industry to push that message is just to understand what that means and, and really to exercise personal responsibility you need to have knowledge you need to have choice you need to it needs to be affordable and uh, a lot of people don't have that you know the as you know the information is being corrupted by industry in terms of what people make their health decisions on and um and when you've got a food environment which is saturated with ultra processed junk food wherever you go it makes it much more difficult to make the healthy choice. And in some places, it's almost impossible. So personal responsibility shouldn't even come into the discussion, to be perfectly honest with you. I think it's nonsense. I think it's absolutely And I could challenge and talk to anybody, any place, any time, to basically show that this is a very small part of the equation. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't empower patients and we can't help them. But when we're talking about the real issue facing this, this problem of obesity in the epidemic, it's got absolutely nothing to do with personal responsibility. I would even go as far as to... Uh, agree with uh, Gary Taubes, you know, who uh, in a documentary called Fed Up said to say that this is due to personal responsibility is, is a crime. To say that obesity is because of, you know, personal responsibility is a crime. And I think it is criminal to say that. Yes, I totally agree. And I think, you know, it brings up a, a great point. You said the environment talking, I know you had written a little bit about um, a campaign from Krispy Kreme over in the UK. And I saw a very similar thing here where you even, you know, in the time of COVID, you have healthcare workers who are really at their wits end and, and strained. And then you have people sort of capitalizing on that and bringing in junk food into the hospitals as a way to say thank you, which, you know, we can appreciate the gesture of wanting to say thank you, but then it's making it the easy decision to eat what's right in front of you. And for so many of us, I've been in that situation when you're on call, you haven't slept in 24 hours and there are donuts right there. It's really hard to not eat them if there's not a healthy option available too. Yes. And I, and I was that person. I completely empathize with, with that situation, Julie. I think for me on a personal level, once I became more aware about the harm that these sorts of foods were, were doing to my health, certainly in the, in the medium to long term, and, uh, you know, my, 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 the conditioning of my mind has changed where I see such products really I, as, as toxic products. I can't fathom that, you know, and I used to be somebody who was, you know, I would call myself, a, you know, a sugar addict. I mean, I got through a lot of sugar in, on a daily basis through most of my early medical career. And, um, and now I can't even stomach yeah. the thought of eating and, and knowing how they're made and what's in them, et cetera. And then even when I've tried them, so, okay, let's see how it is. I just can't stomach it. I just, I hate it. I, I don't feel good. Oh, no. Once And once your buzz <laughs> change and your body knows what real food is, it's yes. not really that great anymore. Absolutely. 
Wow. Okay. Well, I want to start moving into talking about this pandemic and talking about the impact of all of these things on our immunity. So can you take us through when you first started hearing word of, of COVID and the pandemic started to sweep the globe, what were your initial thoughts? And then um, as it started to develop and we gathered more data about who it was affecting, um, how did that affect your approach? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, obviously we know that um, or we believe that COVID-19 originated from Wuhan in China. And uh, original data, you know, was coming through from both China and Italy that was then reaching medical publication. And what was very clear is that there was a very strong association with people who were having the worst outcomes and comorbidities, uh, conditions such as, you know, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and of course, obesity. And uh, for me, it was, became very clear early on that, you know, the, the, the underlying risk factors for, you know, um, for these conditions were related to excess body fat and the metabolic syndrome, which we, we, we can define and discuss shortly. And when I, when I became aware of that, also, Julie, with the background knowledge, and, and I think a lot of doctors kind of know this, but don't really, it's never really been at the forefront of, of their minds until now, is we know, for example, that you know, people who have high blood glucose or type 2 diabetics get more, you know, have worse outcomes from any infection, specifically respiratory infections. So when I started looking at the literature and also looking at how immune health links to excess body fat, obesity, and type 2 diabetes, pre-COVID, the data was very clear that this is a big risk factor for, um, you know, a dysregulated immune system, an immune system that isn't going to function properly. So it wasn't just about the associations that we were drawing from COVID-19 and worse outcomes but it was actually with already what exists in terms of how the immune system is affected by, you know, all of these conditions related to excess body fat. So one of the first things, having realized that, uh, and I then um, very early on before the UK was hit big and certainly before the US was hit, um, I was able, I wrote an article in the, in the Sunday Express newspaper, which was then republished on CrossFit. But I think for me, you know, what was quite, extraordinary and disappointing was certainly there was nothing coming through from the mainstream, nothing coming from the government, nothing coming from our public health authorities to tell the public that this is a time to really think about your lifestyle, specifically diet. And, um, and the reasons for that are probably twofold. One is lack of knowledge. You know, uh, if you don't mind me using this, you know, I'd say that scientific incompetence at the very highest level combined with the commercial influence of the fact that actually, you know, telling people to cut junk and ultra processed food was also going to be something that would um, uh, affect the food industry potentially. And they wouldn't like that because they're very powerful and they've got a lot of money and they lobby their politicians, etc. So I, I had an opportunity to go on Sky News and uh, I went on Sky News and I said that, you know, this is the time now before we have this huge, we know, you know, we, we just started a, a lockdown in the UK. Um, but we hadn't had any anything like any major deaths or any big sort of figures hadn't hit the, the UK. The, the, the extent of COVID hadn't really taken its full toll on the population. I said, this is a time now that people need to think about, you know, eating real food and, and moderate exercise and all that kind of stuff. Because the likelihood is, and we first of all, we know that these changes in lifestyle, um, Julie, happen uh, in terms of affecting, you know, these risk factors very quickly within a few weeks this is the time to do it. But of course, that's, you know, one voice, one opportunity in the media. 
unless it gets then taken up and then you know it, it escalates it's it's probably not going to hit that many people other than potentially my followers and a few other people you know who are watching the news on that particular time um and uh, and and then that's really how it started for me and then as things progressed i then used opportunities whatever i could do as an advocate as someone you know uh, and you know and it, it's you know got different doctors to come on board wrote other articles got press releases out to keep reinforcing it and eventually what happened was um, our uk prime minister boris johnson got very unwell with covid and i could see that again you know it were that, that it, i knew that his excess weight was probably a big risk factor so i wrote another article after he came out of hospital of course you know would have probably would have been insensitive to say it you know during when he was very sick but he came out and he was making a recovery i then wrote another article and by that time we'd had more and more data coming through from the states in particular you know where there were reports and articles coming out saying obesity was linked to covid-19 worse outcomes so we had more data then and then i wrote another piece um in european scientist which went viral and i think ended up having like 250,000 views or something uh, which broke the record for that particular journal and then the telegraph newspaper which is interestingly the most read uh well one of the most influential newspapers influences the british government you know they you know they really pay attention to this particular newspaper they featured an article from me on their front page um which was it's you know this is a it's 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 time to talk about us have a serious discussion about our weight and again i mentioned boris johnson's sickness and everything going on crispy cream donuts the whole obesity issue and this is now you know time to move forward and at that point um good morning britain i think you have something called good morning america over there they invited me on to their show literally the day after that was published or the morning that was published and um and and at that opportunity we had a longer discussion again i reiterated the issues about metabolic health and i then said it's likely the prime minister got sick because of his weight now nobody at that point had other than me writing it had said it on any public broadcasting um you know forum or medium and uh, it then that then became a new story it was picked up by the times and suddenly you know you know whatever top cardiologist said boris got sick of his weight etc <laughs> and and then things you know it's interesting then the prime and then the secretary for health and social care contacted me and asked me to advise him on the links between covid and obesity and said it's actually beyond obesity this is actually obesity is a tip of the diet related disease iceberg we need to concentrate on metabolic health so that's how things kind of uh, you know move forward and then my publisher i was in the middle of writing halfway through writing a different book which will come out next year she said can you stop what you're doing can you write something on immunity and covid and metabolic health i said yeah you know can you get it done in 6 weeks i said yeah and we got it out so uh, that's that, really the story of, of my story in covid and metabolic health and all that kind of stuff wow <laughs> thing what a whirlwind but amazing to that that you were able to get all this information out and get the book out in such a short time frame because like you said it is this is a critical time for so many people and and you know it can be drastically improved or even reversed in a in a relatively short time frame if we're making the right changes um could you talk a little bit about you said it's you know obesity is just the tip of the iceberg but how you would define metabolic disease or, or or this sort of cluster of chronic diseases and then how those actually impact our immune function. Yeah, so it's a really important question, Julie. Um in fact, actually the best data we have on this is from the United States. So if we just define metabolic health in very simple terms as really um the level at which for you individually excess body fat starts to increase risk of many conditions and those conditions include type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, 
likely cancer and Alzheimer's as well. So these are really the big chronic metabolic diseases, if you like, that are responsible for the biggest you know, stress on the US healthcare system and in the UK as well, and where most of the money is spent in treating these conditions. So this, the root of this is poor metabolic health. And what was quite extraordinary, something I'd come across only, uh, only earlier on in the year, was a publication that revealed that in the United States, it's estimated only one in eight people, one in eight adults, Julie, are metabolically healthy. And this isn't even just for the older population, only one in four, age between 20 and 40. And uh, which basically means that the majority of the US population do have, have suboptimal metabolic health, which I will define in a second. But the worst form of metabolic health, if you like, is something called metabolic syndrome, which is if you have three out of five markers of metabolic health being abnormal. So those markers are, um, you know, pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, based upon your average blood glucose, um, pre-hypertension and above or, or, or high blood pressure. So essentially having a normal blood pressure is you want it to be less than 120 over 80. Um, increased waist circumference. So it's not about BMI, not about obesity. Increased waist circumference, which for Caucasians is a, you know, measured at the belly button is 102 centimeters uh, for males and 88 centimeters for females. For South Asians, interestingly, it's less. We seem to develop these conditions at lower levels of body fat. So 90 centimeters for a man and 85 centimeters for a woman. And then it's two specific markers in your cholesterol profile, which are your triglycerides, um, uh, you know, high triglycerides and low HDL really are the abnormal markers. If you have any of, any of those abnormal, you have suboptimal metabolic health. And of course, three out of those five means you have metabolic syndrome. And of course, this is a huge, huge problem in the US. But it isn't being really measured or identified for most people. Certainly not. It's not routinely measured in the UK and then acted upon uh, for two reasons. One is, again, lack of knowledge. These are the biggest risk factors really for, you know, let's just say heart, heart disease. You know, two thirds of people who have heart attacks have metabolic syndrome, you know, whereas 75 percent of them will have so-called normal cholesterol. So this is the big issue. And the reason why it's not being addressed is that the the data shows that the best interventions to reverse these risk factors, improve them, et cetera, are lifestyle changes. There's no money to be made just from simple lifestyle changes, but there's money to be made from prescribing a pill, which treats individual risk factors. Unfortunately, many of these pills are next to useless um, in actually helping people prolong their life. Um, diabetes drugs in general don't improve mortality, improving glucose control. They don't reduce cardiovascular death rate. They may have a very small impact on heart attacks and certainly other issues like kidney disease, et cetera. But in the grand scheme of things, they're not very, very effective. And, um, and we know that lifestyle changes can send type 2 diabetes into remission in probably up to 50% of people. So all of these issues, which I cover in the book, um, are something that isn't part of the mainstream but needs to be. And, uh, and, and that's really where we're at at the moment. So the 21-day immunity plan, which obviously I know we'll talk about a little bit later in the book, one of the reasons it was called 21 days was because, you know, clinical studies show that metabolic syndrome can be reversed within 21 to 28 days just from changing diet. You know, when we look about the hierarchy, about all these different things, and of course, exercise has a huge role to play in health, and so does good sleep and stress reduction. But the only intervention proven on its own to reverse metabolic syndrome, Julie, is dietary changes. You can't do this from exercise alone at all. You, you budget maybe a little bit. When you look at metabolic health markers, it is diet, diet, diet. So, 
you know, what we need to be doing is we need to make food as part of a form of healthcare. And if we're going to fix healthcare, we need to fix the food. Wow, that really is, I've never thought about it that way. I've been thinking a lot lately, why don't we routinely measure all of the risk factors for metabolic syndrome and use that as sort of one of our clinical scores as we practice medicine? And that makes perfect sense the way that you explained it, because each of the individuals, if you have diabetes or you have high cholesterol, you can affect that with a pill, right? But when you're looking at this cluster of symptoms, yeah, maybe you can take a few different pills to address each of these little things, but the most effective way to have an impact and to really reverse it is through lifestyle, which is something that, you know, our medical system is not very well equipped to address. Yeah, Julie, absolutely. I think on that, I think what's important, and I addressed that in one of the earlier chapters in the book, and this is a very interesting study in the United States, is another reason why we're not addressing it is because of people's beliefs, perceptions, over-optimistic view of modern medicine. So if you look at, you know, data, you know, if you look at life expectancy in the United States from 1850 to now, there's been an average increase in life expectancy of about 40 years. They did a study in the United States amongst educated adults to find out what did they think, you know, what, how much would they attribute of those 40 years, um, you know, to modern medicine. And most people thought that, you know, 80% of those 40 years, 32 years, increase in life expectancy since 1850 was because of modern medicine when nothing could be further from the truth at best it's probably three and a half to five years most of the increase in life expectancy that's happened since you know over that century plus has been because of wider determinants public health interventions that addressed you know better sanitation safe drinking water seat belts in cars better working environments you know, safer working environments, if you like, and smoking regulation. You know, the 50% of the decline in heart disease death rates in the last three or four decades can be purely attributed to reduction in smoking, more than modern medicine for even treatment and management of heart disease. So I think that myth needed to be busted, which I did earlier on in the book, to then, then you know, let things flow into why we need to put all our focus on our healthcare resources and shift the balance towards lifestyle changes if we're going to sort that, you know, people's health out. Oh, absolutely. And I think the other, the other point that you brought up about how we sort of knew this in the medical community, how, how people who had metabolic syndrome or metabolic disease were more likely to have severe infections, um, but it wasn't something that was talked about a lot and definitely not in the mainstream media. Um, and we always think about it as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, strokes, heart attacks, things like that. But, but what is the link between metabolic dysfunction and then decreased immune function? Yeah, so um, there's probably at least two mechanisms that we're aware of. One is that if you have excess body fat, specifically visceral fat or fat that you know, um, deposits itself around your, your belly, essentially, your stomach, that that essentially is linked to a, what we call low-grade chronic inflammation. So your body is essentially, um, you know, responding to external environmental stresses or triggers or, you know, whether it's, a, whether it's a toxic food that we consume or whether it's stress or poor sleep. And that then basically creates this environment where there is chronic inflammation in the body. Now, what that means is that your immune system is not primed uh, or optimized to deal with external pathogens when they come in. So that's one mechanism. In addition to the fact with people with obesity, for example, where the BMI is over 30, very you know, high BMI, 
Um, it also seems to be linked to this, what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome, that they have an exaggerated response when they, you know, a minority of people have their lungs being affected by COVID and develop pneumonias, for example, that they cause extra inflammation in the lungs and your own immune system has an exaggerated response. And when it's trying to deal with this, you know, the, the virus in the lungs, it then um, releases lots of inflammatory molecules and fluid and edema and all that kind of stuff that causes a, a, another problem. So that's one, um, certainly one of the mechanisms. The other mechanism is that in, for type 2 diabetics, in particular, high blood glucose, you know, viruses and bacteria seem to thrive off high blood glucose. And, uh, and that also has an impact on your uh, immune function. And, and the best data we have certainly from China showed that type 2 diabetics admitted to the hospital who had high poor glucose control compared to the ones that had good glucose control had a tenfold increased risk of death. So, you know, that is really quite a, a strong indicator that blood glucose and that, and we know that from other data as well, Julie, that pre-COVID um, type 2 diabetics with poor blood glucose control are much more likely to be admitted to hospital, several times more likely to be admitted to hospital with pneumonias and chest infections. Oh, so that's, that's one thing. I think the other issue is that um, on a positive note, you know, for, and this is something I learned quite recently when it comes to exercise, for example, um, moderate activity enhances T cell response, which is, you know, involved in the innate immune uh, response to any kind of virus or bacteria. And, uh, and data pre-COVID, again, interestingly shows that people who did moderate levels of activities, that's to say, for argument's sake, the precise definition is doing 30 minutes of something that makes you break a sweat five times a week. So you're getting 150 minutes a week in. Those were sort of the optimal level of exercise to reduce the risk of chest infections and flu, for example. Um, but if you did too much exercise, people who are like do more than an hour a day of you know quite excessive exercise, those people had more chest infections than even people who are sedentary, because excessive exercise actually dampens the immune system. So I think that's also important to, for people out there that are trying to that, that think that are caught into this. You know, the, the more exercise you do, the better. People exercise for different reasons. Certainly we know for longevity reasons, for heart disease, moderate exercise goes a long way and you don't gain anything extra if you're an elite athlete, you know. Um, but I think people should just be aware of that and a bit more mindful of that because, um, you know, you hear these stories, Julie, and of course are anecdotal, of young runners who got really sick from COVID and have uh, got long COVID now or even some of them that died. And you hear these stories, you know, my, my friend, my, 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 my roommate, you know, I'm really, you know, I, I saw stuff on Twitter and it was, it was tragic. People who were young saying, you know, he was a fit marathon runner. He's been running and stuff and then he got COVID and he's dead. And I just thought for a second, I was like, wow, you know, it may well be that was the factor that the, the deciding factor for that person may be the fact that they were overdoing it in terms of exercise, you know? So I think that's something that, again, I highlight in the book. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important to think about all of these things can be done to extreme, like exercise itself is a stressor and without enough recovery time, it can actually cause more inflammation and not, not necessarily the benefit that you're looking for. So the recovery time and not overdoing it is definitely an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And, and you know, what I advise for my patients, Julie, that come to me, I see a lot of obviously cardiac patients that have had stress as one of the major underlying causes of their, of their problems. Yeah. And some of them even have been elite athletes or people who are wondering why do they have the heart attack in their 50s? And they, these are people that work out a lot and, and all that kind of stuff. And you get down to it and you find that they've got very stressful lives. In that situation, when you've got a lot of stress going on, you know, really pounding it, overdoing it in the gym or running whatever else probably makes the situation worse. So one of the things I just said, I want you to go light. 
let's focus on your sleep and your stress, and then let's build things back up. So that combination of poor sleep, probably a bad diet, and over-exercising is probably bad for your overall health, to be perfectly honest with you. And again, that's a, maybe a, a discussion and a, a, for another time, but again, it's about people being mindful and just thinking a little bit more about that. You know, Get a good sleep, nourish yourself well, recover well, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and you know, I'm somebody that, that was in a situation last year, personally speaking, someone who's been, you know, I would say I've got OCD when it comes to activity. And I, I didn't recover one day on the background of doing quite intense hit. I then played badminton with my father in the middle of the summer, uh, a game I hadn't played for years, having been, you know, played very competitively. And it's, it's quite a singles badminton can be quite a strain on, you know, all sorts of, and I ruptured my Achilles. And I now reflect on it, Julie, if I just decided to take a day off and recovered when I should have done, I probably wouldn't have ruptured my Achilles. Yep. Yep. It's such a great point. And how all these factors, you have to look at the big picture. It's not just how much are you exercising? It's how much did you sleep? How stressed are you? Um, how are all these factors coming into play on how well your body is able to handle any new stressors that are coming along? Um, and I like to, in the book, you also brought out, you know, I think we're all everybody's talking about a vaccine coming out someday for, for COVID-19, but you talked about especially how vaccine effectiveness can be improved in people who are doing moderate amounts of, of regular exercise. And also we've seen this with sleep. If, if people are sleep deprived, their ability to mount uh, an appropriate response to a vaccine is decreased. So it's yes. not just, you know, and, and obesity too, Julie, as well. People with obesity also have a suboptimal response to vaccines and elderly as well, who are, you know, with chronic conditions, um, so all these people that are most at risk are, are the ones that are going to have the least effective response to a vaccine. Right. So, you know, that's important. You know, I think we need to develop a vaccine. That's an important piece of this. But thinking that that's going to solve the entire problem is is definitely short-sighted. Yeah. Um, and we're still way off getting an effective vaccine that we know of. So up until that point, let's just try and maximize, uh, you know, our uh, immune resilience if you like. Um, and I think also people listening to this, um, Julie, would also, if you think back, you know, we've all been sick, we've all had the flu, we've all had illnesses. And a lot of the time, certainly when I reflect back on it, it has been during a time where I wasn't well rested or was super stressed or whatever else. So, you know, it, it, anecdotally, I think people think about it, they'll realize, yeah, you know, that there are things that, that we do in our lives that make us vulnerable. Now, listen, you can't go through it your whole life with, you know, having perfect sleep. But I think it's something we just need to just pay more attention to. Yes, absolutely. I think we've all experienced that in one way. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so so we touched on a lot of these, you know, nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress. Um, and I, I definitely want people to check out the book and, and read all of the details. But can you give sort of a broad overview of, of what are some of the things that we can do to improve our immunity? Yeah, so I think one of the simple messages I start with when it comes to diet, Julie, is people should eliminate. So I think there, there is an element of, if you, if you like, addiction to, um, you know, foods that are not very nourishing and, and are likely to help, you know, encourage weight gain. Uh, and, and what I, I talk about is ultra processed food, which is now, you know, 60% of the US adult population and 50% of the UK adult population. Our, their calorie consumption is coming from ultra-processed food, which is pretty shocking. And these are foods that usually in, come in packages, packaged food, have more than five ingredients, five or more ingredients, and usually with additives and preservatives. So very simple rule of thumb for everybody listening. 
if it comes out of a packet, and this includes, you know, breads and, and, and all sorts of stuff, as well as your usual potato chips and candies, if it comes out of a packet and you look at the ingredient list and you can count five or more, don't eat it, at least for a month. You know, part of the plan is just go cold turkey for a month. Do that. In addition, also minimize if you can. If you can go cold turkey, great. If you can't, certainly minimize low quality carbohydrates. So these are your, um, you know, carbs that lack fiber. So this is your bread, pasta, rice, um, potatoes, essentially. And uh, if you do that, certainly that seems to have, you know, that will probably have the biggest impact in in um, in improving metabolic risk factors. And probably if you're overweight as well, you probably see significant improvements in your weight. And then to eat real food. And that, you know, depending on your personal preference and, and values, you know, that can, you can do that if you're a vegetarian, you can do that if you're a meat eater, you can do that if you're a car, you know, someone who prefers carnivore. Um, the key issue on the population level is these ultra processed foods. So these are, again, you know, it's about um, good nutrition and it's about avoiding, uh, and the data also tells us these sorts of foods seem to be not only associated with chronic disease, but encourage, you know, have an adverse effect on the, on the gut microbiome and encourage overeating by interfering with hormones that control appetite. So I think you need to see these foods as appetite stimulants. Mm -hmm. and, and if I go cold turkey on them, I can really recalibrate so that when I come out of that and you can, people can carry on for months and months or they might do it for a month and say, okay, I miss my whatever it is. People will feel actually that it won't be now 50% of their diet or 60% of the diet. They may minimize and think, you know what, I'm just going to have this on the weekend because your, your palate changes. So that's one of the things I highlight. So I think from a dietary perspective, that's probably one of the most important things you can do. And then uh, in terms of activity, I encourage obviously moderate activity. Um, and, and that basically means breaking a sweat or doing something where you can um, have a conversation, but maybe you can't sing, you know, so and, and get, do that for at least 30 minutes, five times a week. If you've got a heart rate monitor, then you want to be getting between 50 and 70% of your target heart rate for at least 30 minutes a day. Um, and, and for people that don't know that I described that in the book, but essentially you can calculate that by minusing your age from 220 and then 50 to 70% of that is your so-called zone of your moderate activity level. So that's a very simple way for people to understand the moderate activity. And, um, and then we talk about sleep and stress. So I would say that if you're not getting at least seven to seven and a half hours sleep a night, then you have to ask yourself why, and it's likely increasing your you know, insulin resistance and, 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 um, and risk moving forward. So really think about what you can do to reduce, you know, to improve your sleep. And some of that might be simple things like avoiding caffeine after midday. It might be um, switching off from social media for at least two hours before bedtime because it can interfere with your, you know, your, your, your thoughts and, and, and your, uh, you know, your, your arousal levels in terms of your mind. And, and you want to really just, and I think one of the things I really am a big advocate for is meditation and uh, either downloading an app or at least doing 10 to 20 minutes of meditation every day through, through deep breathing. And if you can't do that, you're struggling, then, um, you know, seek help, see somebody that can or go to a class. So I think these things combined should really be part of every doctor's prescription, Julie, for patients as well, um, because it, the effects are rapid uh, and substantial. You know, this 21 days is not a gimmick. It, it, this stuff works. Right. You, you know, and, and it's not that for many people that might see it as a drastic change to the lifestyle, but it isn't really, um, it's much easier than you think. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, like 
you can do anything for 21 days. And if it can have the potential to have that big of an impact, it's probably worth at least trying, right? Absolutely. And it's the beginning of the journey, Julie, as well, for individuals. And and, and moving forward, I do give a longer term plan of what people can do. Um, but I think the other is, issue is that we all need to also understand and realize, or certainly more people need to realize, that the wider determinants of health, what's going on in the food environment, is is really the major issue. And we that's where you need... Um, you know, I, I talk about um, the people that have the power to change the food environment and the way that the system is at the moment. The only people that can do that really are the government. Yeah. Um, they need to step in um, and, and they need to make those changes like they did with tobacco, with public smoking bans, banning tobacco advertising. The same thing needs to happen with ultra processed food. If that happens, then on a population level, Julie would see much bigger impact uh, for the health of all Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And you you also cited a few very interesting studies, so I hope people will check out the book, um, really comparing the ultra-processed food to less processed food. You know, same calories, same macronutrients, but you're seeing a, a very different response when people are eating the processed food versus real food. Um, but on that note about the bigger changes, towards the end of the book, you talk about 10 key points for public and policymakers, which I, I love because you really put you put out some ideas for, for action on this on a bigger scale. And, you know, people can check out the book to read all of them, but could you just give us a couple of maybe your highest level points of ways that you think that we can make change on a bigger level? Yeah, so I think one of the first things is if, if once people acknowledge that ultra-processed food is a big issue, then um, we should really tax it. We should make it more expensive and use that money to subsidize healthier foods like whole foods, basically, fruit and vegetables, for example. That'll be one of the things. And the reason I say that is that when it comes to cigarette decline in terms of consumption of the population, the taxation of cigarettes actually was the most important. So I talk about, you know, the, the concept from how we tackled tobacco was we addressed the availability, the affordability and the acceptability of cigarettes through regulations. And we can do the same thing to ultra processed food. So in terms of affordability, it's taxation. In terms of availability, it'll be like, for example, um, banning the sale of, of these sorts of foods in hospitals, you know, or in schools. Um, and then the acceptability through public education campaigns, like educating the public, what is ultra processed food, why you should avoid it, why it's bad for you, all that kind of stuff, and just reiterating that. So that's what happened with tobacco. You know, eventually we have warning labels on, on cigarette packets, which we, they didn't used to exist when in the 60s and 70s, more than half of the adult population in the UK and probably the same in the States were smoking, you know, which is pretty extraordinary. Think about it now, Julie. Yeah. More than 50% doctors were smoking in the consultation room. Yeah. When patients were seeing them, they would sit behind their, you know, behind their desk with a cigarette in their hand and, and smoke away. So, you know, and <laughs> you think about that now, you think, how, what there, you know? And um, the yeah. soda, <laughs> it's the same sort of situation. Yeah, or the, or the Krispy Kreme donut or whatever, right? So, uh, so yeah, so that, so, and then it's about, you know, things at the very basic level. So, you know, compulsory food education and nutrition and cooking skills for kids in schools, you know, I am biased because I cook. I love cooking. I learned to cook from my parents. I think it's, it's a great skill to have for life. Everybody should be able to have a basic skill to be able to know how to cook. That's one of the things. Um, banning the sale of junk food and ultra-processed food in hospitals. Um, also for the medical profession as well, and this may be a slightly controversial one, but I think that um, you know, the food environment also links into, of course, how, uh, how health professionals are affected. But in the UK, and I suspect it's probably not dissimilar in the US, Julie, but more than 50% of NHS workers, NHS staff, doctors and nurses are overweight or obese themselves. You know, so I think that... Um, yeah. 
we we need to also look in the mirror and think about what are you know what are we doing for our health? How is that going to our physical health going to affect our performance as doctors? Of course it will. What example are we setting to patients? Yes. So that's something I would certainly highlight. And and last but not least, I think we should all be we should all know our metabolic health markers. All doctors should measure it in their patients, and then prescribe a lifestyle to to, to counteract it or to improve it. So metabolic health needs to be mainstream now. You know, we need we need to really do away with obesity because obesity, you know, misses the the, the bigger picture that you know forty percent of people, up to forty percent of people with a normal BMI, Julie, will have suboptimal metabolic health. You know, because obesity, which is is really just a very crude way of it, it's calculated, as you know, from looking at your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared, and gives you this number. But what it doesn't tell you is your your body fat percentage, your muscle mass, and it doesn't account for ethnicity, age, sex. Right. And it's so just, there's so many problems with BMI. We need to just get rid of it. It's, it's, it's basically, you know, it's nonsense, to be honest. Right. And it's just another symptom of a bigger underlying process, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, it's, it's been so interesting for me just seeing this all play out. And I think it's, it's like you said, this metabolic disease has been going on around the world for so long and it was already putting such a huge strain on all of our healthcare systems but the difference was it was sort of this chronic indolent strain right like people were getting heart attacks and they were getting other infections and maybe for a lot of people that was a wake-up call like you said some of the patients you were talking to were okay this happened now i realize i'm at risk i'm going to make some lifestyle changes but what's amazing about this time in history is right now there's there's this sort of global threat that's putting a lot of focus and attention onto something that we already knew was a problem, but not in such a focused way. And so I think it's really amazing to see how you have been advocating, you know, for us to make some big changes and using this, this situation that we're all in to try to make the best of it and try to improve our health and our resilience overall. Yeah, Julie, absolutely. And I think also, you know, for me, uh, and it's not about being preachy. It's also about thinking about as as doctors, as clinicians, who are we? What are we there to do? Our duty, first and foremost, um, is to patients. You know, it's to improve their health. And 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 um, unfortunately, the system is geared because of so much corporate influence that honest doctors can no longer practice honest medicine. Unfortunately, because of all these uh, externalities. And and I I I would sort of finish with something that I, I put in, you know, in my lectures now, which is in the UK, something called the seven Nolan principles, which are, um, you know, principles that all those in public life, doctors, teachers, police officers, and even politicians should adhere to, you know, people have a duty to the public. And those seven are selflessness, objectivity, integrity, accountability, honesty, openness and leadership and part of leadership is also being having the is being able to um highlight point out and challenge poor behavior wherever it occurs so i think if if, if the medical profession across the board actually thought about this a little bit more and certainly our politicians did then i think we'd be in a much better position in terms of uh, not just healthcare, but in terms of how we live as a society in terms of you know the the social addressing the social inequalities addressing the injustices and structural injustices that exist, they wouldn't be there if, um, if people in positions of power and influence actually just did the right thing. That's beautiful. I love that. And um, 
You know, it's it's interesting how it has in many ways become seemed to become such a controversial topic, like something that it's either or like either we talk about masks and vaccines or we talk about, you know, creating health through lifestyle. But it really has to be both. And um, and just ignoring, like you said, if we ignore the huge impact that lifestyle is having and all these different factors in our society that are contributing to such high rates of poor metabolic health, then we're doing disservice to our patients. And we're not, you know, we're not looking objectively at the data and we're not um, doing the best that we can for, for our patients. Absolutely. Julie, you're right. And I think, you know, what, what you're saying is we've got an imbalance, haven't we? We've got things in the wrong place. Um, and, uh, it's time to, you know, um, it's time to restore balance, bring balance back, you know, to the force or whatever it is, you know, that's what we need to be doing. <laughs> well, I, I would like to close with just three quick questions that I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. So, the first one is, what are three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, go to bed early and wake up early. Um, I'm most creative in terms of my writing in the morning, and I also work out first thing. So I start the day um, with, with a workout. Um, so that's probably one of the things I do. The second thing is I cook almost um, most of my meals is, is cooked from scratch. That's uh, so, and which is something I really enjoy doing. I love doing. And the third thing is I, um, uh, I always try and find time every day to do something for myself. Um, ideally talking with friends or meeting friends, of course, is difficult, obviously with, with a lockdown issue. Um, or, you know, just, just take time out from work to do something that you enjoy. At the moment, it's, you know, it's quite easy just to, you know, stick, stick Netflix on and watch a, watch a series. So those are probably the three things I do that sort of keep me, um, you know, mentally balanced and physically too, obviously. I love that. What is one thing that you think would have an impact on your health, but something that you struggle with or you haven't quite implemented yet? Okay, really good one. I think for me, uh, it's dealing with probably the external stresses of the things I do. And becoming better at meditation. I do meditate, but um, I'm not an, far from being an expert, and I'm not quite there yet. So I think that's the one thing for me I need to focus on is reducing my, um, you know, is really getting de becoming be better better at meditation. I I can definitely work on that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Last question is: What does a healthy life look like to you? Wow, uh, a healthy life um, being me means uh, eating real food not being sedentary and having strong quality, meaningful relationships. The biggest determinant of happiness from research is meaningful relationships. Love it. Beautiful. Well, this has been wonderful. Um, I hope that people listening will check out the new book where I know that it's available in some places in hard copy in some places on audiobook. but where can people find the book and then find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, so if you just um, Google 21 Day Immunity Plan, it's on Amazon, audio and Kindle in the US, paperback also can come from the, from the UK, might take a little bit longer. Uh, and then I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm quite, you know, um, proactive on social media. So on Twitter, Dr. Seymour Hotra, I, I do a lot of stuff on Facebook as well. And my Instagram handle is Lifestyle Medicine Doctor. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been really great. Um, and we appreciate all the work that you're doing. 
Julie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. As always, I will recap my three biggest takeaways after the conversation. My first takeaway from this conversation with Dr. Malhotra was about how improving our metabolic health and therefore decreasing our risk of infection, as well as many other chronic diseases, can actually be accomplished relatively quickly, and it's something that's possible for all of us. My second takeaway was about how we really have to stop shifting the blame to personal responsibility and instead recognizing all of these systemic issues that are contributing to the poor metabolic health of our population. Yes, we do have a certain amount of control over improving our own metabolic health. We actually have a lot of control over that and he gives us the tools to do so, but we would largely not be in this mess if it weren't for all the systemic problems that are contributing. My third takeaway was about how I really loved how Dr. Malhotra talks about his responsibility to his patients, not only to take care of them when they're sitting in front of him in the office, but also to do his part to advocate for them outside the office and the hospital. We need a lot more voices like his of physicians and other healthcare professionals working to advocate for changes in policy that prioritize the health of people instead of just making money or special interests. So I hope you had some great takeaways from this conversation too. 